short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this. American people, I think, is good people. They are. They have not to charge with the guilty of all the lies. Oh, Ray just took off his pants. It's going to be a fun, fun <laughs> night. I can't, I can't lift it. Huge penis. Welcome back to <laughs> the Cold War. This is episode two forty-one, Ray. Yeah, it is. And we're going to get back into the story of the Rosenbergs. Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. Yeah. yeah. Dedicated communists, uh, thought they were doing the right thing. Good people. Good. <laughs> so they were charged with conspiracy to commit espionage that yes. supposedly took place from June 1944 to June 1950, just a little bit of the end of World War II. Right. Through the first five years of the Cold War. Right. Now, here's a quick rundown. The Espionage Act mm-hmm. in the United States of America <laughs> makes it illegal to spill any beans about national defense to any foreign nation. Doesn't matter if you're at war with them or not. Right. Doesn't have to be an enemy. Could be a country that you're friendly with. In yeah. this case, the Soviet Union, at least for the latter part of World War II. Right. A little bit of a history on the Espionage Act for you. President Woodrow Wilson, or, or Woody Will, as he was <laughs> referred to by his friends. Woody Will. Willie. Fuck, yes, he will. He inked this law back in 1917, smack dab in the middle of World War One. Right. And it declared conspiring to spy mm-hmm. a crime with a penalty ranging from death to a maximum of 30 years in prison, but... Right. Interestingly, life yeah. imprisonment was not an option. That that's making. Can we get a lawyer on the phone? I don't understand that. I can kill you, or I can lock you up for thirty years, up to thirty years, but I mm. can't do more than mm. thirty years. I have to kill you at this no. point. Terribly yeah. sorry. Got to kill. Sorry, got to kill you. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> That's weird. But hey, yeah. who knows what the circumstances were when they made that. Now, the Rosenbergs were suspected of passing along atomic bomb secrets to the Soviets, and it didn't matter what the quality of the information was. And this is a big part of the Rosenberg story. Yes. Because as far as we know from what came out during the the case, Mm -hmm. what they passed along wasn't that secret. It was stuff that was already known or was, you know, really uh, pretty unimportant information. Right. But the government prosecuted them anyway because it wasn't really about what they passed along. Right. The government, Truman administration and then the Eisenhower administration were trying to make an example of them. I think partly they were trying to scare them into giving up names and the Rosenbergs refused to give up names. Called the bluff. Yeah, and I and and also to make an example of them to scare other people into not spying. It's a bit like the harsh penalties on dealing drugs and using drugs that you've had for the last fifty years. Right? <laughs> it's designed to scare people, and we know how well that's worked in the war on drugs. Yes, you know, the, yeah. 
an article came out here last week that Australians are the highest users in the world per capita of cocaine. Fun fun second fact. What? Cocaine is more expensive Mm -hmm. to buy here than anywhere else in the world. Oh, because demand you've got to ship it a long way. That too, but no, demand. you just got to ship it a long way. Well, oh, it's demand, yeah, yeah, but but mm. yeah, it's literally on the other side of the planet. Australians are like, we don't care how much <laughs> it's getting. It's like, like it's, I think it's ninety bucks a gram in the UK and three hundred and fifty to four hundred bucks a gram in Australia. Oh my god! And people are like, we don't care how much it costs. Just give me yeah. that white powder. <laughs> give me the. Whatever. Um, yeah. Going back to the Rosenbergs for a second, I know you're a retired judge, uh, but you still have a firm grasp. Is it or is it not, and I put it to you, if not illegal, then at least tacky, to say to someone, I'm going to punish you extra hard for all the people that might come after you. It would seem like that would be n- not cool, man. Uh, what say you? <laughs> That was actually the Rosenberg's defense. Their, their lawyer stood up and said, uh, Your Honor, I think this falls under the not cool man law. All right. So there's some there's some standing. Surprisingly, right, they did they, they didn't get off. It was not this has a happy ending. No, it did not have a happy ending. Oh that's high praise. <laughs> That's not fair, but that's the whole point. Like you were saying, there was more going on than just the trial. Yeah. So the other interesting part of their whole story is the government went for a conspiracy charge over an espionage charge. Oh, is that easier for them? Because it's just like the equivalent of you and I talking about doing something naughty versus actually doing something naughty. So is that does that ease the burden of proof on the prosecution? Am I reading that yeah. right? Yeah. Okay. I think so. Easier easier to – you don't need as much proof. Gotcha. It's just you you, you can you, you thought about doing something bad, whether or not <laughs> you did it. You thought hard. Yeah. 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 Okay. All right. And the problem that they had – well, it might have been – it looked like a problem, but it didn't turn out to be one in the end – is that Ethel, the wife, right. there was no evidence of her actually spying. She was aware of her right. husband's activities. Yeah. And so she got roped in as well. Now, keeping in mind that the, these are the parents of two young children. Right. And you would think, you know, uh, uh, sentencing uh, uh, the mother of two young children to the death penalty when there's no actual evidence of her spying might seem a little bit <laughs> over the top. But. A bit, but in these times. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Now, the Rosenbergs maintained their innocence, pleaded not guilty, and refused to play ball with the prosecution at all. The pressure was cranked up when the Justice Department threatened the death penalty uh, for both of them. They, They arrested Julius first, then they arrested Ethel. They tried to make the arrest of Ethel put pressure on Julius to give up names. Right. He refused. She refused. Then they threatened to give her the death penalty as well. They both still refused to play mm. ball. Now, that's pretty hardcore. I mean, yes. uh, can you imagine you and Heather right. both getting arrested, mm-hmm. probably just for knowing me, um, 
That's and that's enough. Yeah. When the US government comes after me like Julian Assange, my countryman, right. just having known me, let alone having, you know, done a podcast with me for a decade, will be enough to have you both sentenced to the death penalty. Right. And you go, they're like, who else, uh, you know, was Cameron uh, talking yeah. to? What yeah. other who Americans was he friendly with? Yeah. You'd obviously give up David Markham that you would, that without saying, second. second. Yeah. Take him. <laughs> he even ran away to Canada. Take him. Um, <laughs> I but, stayed here, right? I'm a, a patriot. They, you're not going to, just refusing to give up any other names. They go, listen, uh, we're yeah. going to kill you both and leave your children as orphans. And you're like, no, not giving up any names. That's yeah. like, that's a pretty tough call. You really got to love your communism. Right. Um, <laughs> or be to, mostly innocent. Yeah. You know, you Her, think I mean, about, yeah. well, I mean, despite whether or not they're innocent or guilty, um, all they had to do supposedly was give up names yeah. of other communists, other people involved in spying for the Soviet Union, and th- their lives would have been spared. They may have still done time, right? but their right. children wouldn't have had their parents executed by the government. Um, yeah. This is really, you know, dark days in the Soviet Union-esque type stuff here. Exactly. We're going to take you and kill you both. Um, and, yeah. but they, I mean, I, I've tried to get into the mind space of the Rosenbergs doing this. Imagine they're going to kill right. you and your wife and leave your children orphans. And you're like, yeah, fucking do it. Yeah. Well, you, well, don't, you don't have the balls. Right. Yeah. I dare, I double dog dare you. No, by the time I finished reading the books that we were using for this information, I could not help but get a sense that the government was putting on one hell of a bluff. And either the Rosenbergs sensed that or maybe they were they were true to their principles. But but it's almost like the government's going, I'm going to turn it up to an eight. What are you going to do? Nothing. I'm going to turn it up to a nine. You're going to give me names? No. I'm going to turn it up to 10. You're going to give me names? I'm going to kill you. You're going to give me... I mean, it's just this almost, almost like a game of chicken where the Rosenbergs, despite everything, like you just said, despite everything, they don't ever blink. And so the government's like, oh, fuck. Well, now we got to kill him. Well, now we got to justify it. What's our story? So to me, it's, it, it almost feels like the, it got away from the government very quickly because the Rose, Rosenbergs never gave anything, but the government couldn't back down because you got the Republicans, you got the Chinese, you got the Soviets. The, the government of Truman and then later Eisenhower could not back down despite whatever laws were in place at the time. That's the sense I got. I wanted to ask you your your feel. How, what were the vibes for you? Up your fucking game. <laughs> that's, what, that's what the government said. It's time to go out and kick some ass and do whatever you can to inflict pain. And they did. The government yeah, they did. did. <laughs> Fuck. Yeah. It, it, like, uh, of course, we've got to keep in mind, and we'll talk about this as we go through. Right. Korea's happening at the time. Good There's point. There's this, the, the leading up to the Red Scare, Americans are terrified of yeah. this, you know, uh, coming eminent Soviet global takeover right. where they're going to be eating babies and setting fire to people's testicles. And, <laughs> or the know, other way around, whatever. 
you know, eating the testicles, firing up the babies. But the point is, but the Americans have been hyped up because of their press, because of their government. That's the great irony here. The government can't back down because the people are worked up. The people are worked up because the government government wouldn't back down in Korea. So it's all cyclical, ironic, whatever. They are reaping what they said. In fact, they ended up blaming the Rosenbergs for Korea. <laughs> <laughs> we single-handedly so, caused a war. Anyway, sorry. The the government prosecution team, um, you know, they they wanted to get the Justice Department wanted to get a, a really hard as nails judge yeah. assigned to this, uh, and they got a guy called Irving Kaufman. Right um, now, Kaufman was sort of. Um, I don't know, he's a really hard-ass guy who it seems decided that they were guilty from the outset and was determined to throw the book at them. Yeah. Uh, the the young assistant to the U.S. attorney <laughs> right. was none other than Roy Cohn. Now, 20, 24 years old at this point. Yeah. yeah. I think we've mentioned Roy in earlier episodes, in the Red Scare episodes, Mm-hmm. Um, we'll talk about him a little bit later on, but he ended up uh, teaching Donald Trump everything that Trump knows about using the legal system to get his own way. Oh, he was Trump's lawyer later right. in life for a long time. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Roy Cohen claims to have played a big part in getting Kaufman on the case, and he even said that Kaufman had plans to send Julius to the gallows even before the trial started. Oh, that's a good judge. Sorry. Well, Sorry. <laughs> technically speaking, that's not a good judge. I think um, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Some, some about well, facts. Go ahead. Something about presumption of innocence, uh, <laughs> supposedly central to um, the the legal system in so they, uh, democratic, yeah. civilized countries. So um, this guy, yeah. so <laughs> according to Roy Cohen, anyway, um, Kaufman from the outset wanted to see these this couple burn. Did Kaufman uh, not apply mm. for the job but make it known that he was most desirous of being yeah. the judge for this case? Okay. Yeah. He's he really, really wanted this. <laughs> he did. He really did. Wanted this. And the government wanted him for it as well. Yes. Now, here's another interesting thing about Kaufman, the judge. During mm-hmm. the trial – he had ex parte consultations with the U.S. attorney, a guy called Irving Saypol, and Roy Cohen to ensure right. that he could bring down the death penalty. Now, for, uh, you know, you and I both uh, are you know, retired uh, judges, so we and, know a lot yeah. of – but for people who aren't, ex parte yeah. consultations, right? Explain yeah. to the people at home what ex parte consultations are. Well, I'm not going to lie. Uh, the only reason I know is because of all the L.A. law that I used to watch. Love that show. Got it all on VHS. But that's not the point. Let's let's stay focused, people. So ex parte consultations is when there's a chat between one of the lawyers or one of the sides and the judge and the other side's lawyer is not there. That is no bueno. That's not good. In fact, that's what we call illegal. You cannot do that because like you were, you were joking about a second ago about... 
the law is supposed to be fair, it's supposed to be impartial, and it's supposed to be even. And if you have a conversation with the judge, if you're a lawyer in a case, you have a conversation with the judge, the other lawyer is supposed to be there as well, because you, you know, due diligence, you, you share all that information. This is not good. They're having private consultations and the defending attorneys are not there. That That is bullshit. And it's illegal. And you can get in a lot of trouble for that normally. But I get the sense that the political currents at the time, I think a lot of people were willing to give this a miss, in my opinion. Yeah. Ex parte. Uh, now, you and I love a good parte. <laughs> We've had a few good partes in our time. Yes. But ex parte right. uh, is, is the morning after. is like, right. oh, oh, man, oh I'm God. ex that parte. That's right. <laughs> In Latin, ex parte means like uh, from out of the party or uh, uh, a, a oh. faction of the party. Someone's so missing. Have, Someone's not there. Yes, you have okay. a consulta- consultation with one party, but there's a party missing. Yeah, and as you said, like it's 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 not really fair to yeah. for the judge to be having a little bit of a cozy chat with one yeah. of the lawyers, one of the legal teams, and leaving the other one out. Okay. So. But this went on, apparently, in the Rosenberg's case. He was having little side chats with the uh, government's prosecutor. Like, how far are we going to go here? Yeah. Hey, if I give him the death penalty, you okay with that? You cool with that? Because I really, really want to really? see these two burn at the stake. <laughs> yes. Um, now, that's unethical and improper, um, and, you know, the judge should have faced disciplinary action. Right. Uh, but that never happened. No. If anything, he got a high five. So, yes, breaking the laws already and the trial hasn't even started yet. Just to uh, circle back to our mate Roy Cohn here, he he sort of made his bones during this period, a bit like Richard Nixon did, and he ended up being a very high-profile American attorney and was chief counsel to Senator Joseph McCarthy Mm. after this during the whole Red Scare thing. It was sort of the two of them cooked up the whole Red Scare thing out of this, saw it as an opportunity for both of them to really make their name, as did Richard Nixon. Yeah. This is how they, the three of them really came to prominence in the US. Um, yeah. After Cohen left government service, set up a private practice in New York City, had a lot of great clients like uh, mafia figures right. and... <laughs> For future president Donald Trump, yes. um, go online and you'll see lots of photos of Trump and Roy Cohen together in the late 70s and 80s. He was, um, you know, very, very aggressive lawyer. His yes. legal tactics were often fairly sketchy. Um, he faced multiple allegations of unethical behavior over the course of his career, he was eventually disbarred Mm. by the state of New York in 1986, a few months before he died of uh, AIDS-related diseases. Uh, There's a play, very famous play, uh, Angels in America, a gay fantasia on national themes by Tony Kushner. Um, Big hit in Broadway. Al Pacino played the role of Roy Cohn in the film version. I think they made for HBO uh, in the 2000s. Yeah. um, Which I've seen is very good. So, yeah, he was supposedly a closeted gay man um, and, uh, yeah, died of AIDS. Who's the guy that's got the tattoo of Nixon on his back that also is a lawyer for 
or whatever for Trump. The older guy, he's in Florida. Oh, God, I'm looking right at him. Anyway, Rudy Giuliani. No, 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 no. Uh, God, I'm looking right. Anyway, uh, if I said the name, you would know it instantly because he, he was in the news a lot. And he was the one who got in trouble for, for threatening and said Trump should bust heads. But anyway, he said of Roy Cohn, he goes, Roy Cohn was not gay. He just likes sex with men. And what he meant was he was he, he was trying to protect Roy Cohn's, um, uh, his manhood. He, he wasn't weak. He wasn't effeminate. He just liked what he liked. He was uh, all American beefcake who just liked to be with other American beefcakes. So, uh, but the, the, uh, the pathetic attempt to protect each other's reputation when you're dealing with highly dysfunctional, but highly effective lawyers like this, it, it's its own little world. Um, and it's driving me crazy that I can't remember his name. But anyway, uh, so so there was a lot of people who, who who were working with Roy through the years and still, for whatever reason, uh, defended him at his end when he loses his license and when he does die of AIDS, even though he oh. denied. Did he deny being gay or did he kind of was he kind of vague with his answers about that? Uh, yeah, I think he denied it. Roger Stone is Stone, who you're talking about. That, thank you. Thank you. God, I'm sorry. I completely drew a blank on it. It's too hot. Too damn hot. It's hot and it's wet and not in a good way. I'm done. I'm done. He has a Nixon tattoo on his back. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's supposed to be a sizable one. Uh, it used to be in the bodybuilding and weights. But anyway, we, we can talk about that later. According to uh, Wikipedia, when Roy Cohen recruited G. David Shine as chief consultant to the McCarthy staff, Right. Speculation arose that Shine and Cohn had a sexual relationship. Shine's chauffeur later volunteered to testify that he had seen the two engaged in homosexual acts yeah. in the back of his limousine, That's though not- there was no evidence that Shine ever had any romantic feelings for Cohn. During this period, Shine dated the actress Piper Laurie, and he eventually married a former Miss Universe, producing six children. Hell yeah. I mean, why wouldn't you? Uh, Overcompensation, really. <laughs> uh, I love a guy put it on me one time, and now I have to have six kids. Wow. Piper Laurie, uh, David Lynch fans will know as Catherine Martell in the original Twin Peaks series. Mm. She was uh, an evil yeah. <laughs> character in yeah. that. Andrew Packard's sister married to Pete Martell. Uh, the mm. guy, the, the shit, what was the name of the guy who played Pete Martell? Um, uh, he was like David Lynch's leading man mm. in, um, a razor head. Uh, and in, uh, Twin Peaks, it was Pete who found Laura Palmer and said, Jack Nance, that's who it was. Yes. Jack Nance played it. He's like, She's dead. Wrapped. Wrapped. Remember that? Wrapped in plastic. I loved him. Dead. On a beach. Wrapped in plastic. (laughs) Fucking. You just brought back memories. Oh my God. Love that show. I got to play a clip. Got to play a clip of that. (laughs) Of course you do. (laughs) He's dead. Wrapped in plastic. (laughs) <laughs> wrapped in plastic. Plastic. Oh, he died um, rather tragically, Jack Nance. Oh, wow. um, yeah, great actor in all of David Lynch's productions for a 
long time. And mm-hmm. then on December 29th, 1996, Nance lunched with friends, um, had a visible crescent-shaped bruise under his eye, and when asked about it, he related to them a story about a brawl outside a Winchell's donut store that morning after he uh-huh. shouted at two men. He Cut described the, the incident as, I guess I got what I deserved. He went home complaining of a headache. The injuries he sustained caused a subdural hematoma resulting in his death the following morning. His body was Shit. discovered on the bathroom floor of his South Pasadena apartment. Um an yeah. autopsy revealed that the actor's blood alcohol level was 0.24% at oh. the time of his death. Right. Just a quick question following up from an earlier comment. When we eventually pass, what what's going to be the name of the play that encapsulates our special, deep, meaningful relationship? Do you got... Uh, uh, well, that Two. moment just before we started recording today when you took your pants off and uh, waved your dick about <laughs> in front of the camera. I think that'll be the that'll be going in the documentary about our lives. I only do that for good friends and for $20, but we should probably get on with the. Okay, Roy Cohn. So back to the Rosenbergs. So they yes. were held in the um, House of Detention in Manhattan awaiting their trial. Mm. And it was during this time when uh, all of the news from Korea started um, coming out. The North Korean troops were advancing south, pushing back the uh, American and um, South Korean UN troops. Mm -hmm. And as we've talked about on this here uh, podcast in our Korean War series, um, it was very distressing for Americans, uh, supposedly thinking of themselves as unbeatable. They were going to go over there, teach the North Koreans a lesson, and then they get their asses kicked, get pushed all the way down to the bottom of the country. Um, Death toll was becoming very high. Yeah. And they, you know, there was really this sense of um, existential Fear, I think, mm-hmm. in America at the time. Yeah. And in 1950, they passed the Internal Security Act, a.k.a. the McCarran Act, which required Communist Party members to register with the government and potentially face prosecution. Does that seem like a toe over the line? I mean, I know they're reacting to the stuff in the Korea and stuff in Eastern Europe, and uh, I'm not sure the, the exact time, but the Soviet, you know, more spies coming out, Fuchs and stuff like that, and the uh, the Soviets are going to test their bomb. But it seems like for the Americans at this point, you're, you're right, because they've been given one storyline. They've been given one narrative, and now all of it's coming in part. Our troops are losing the war. There are spies all over the place. We don't know who we can trust. Desperate times call for desperate measures. Uh, And so I think you're going to see uh, either collectively or individually, a lot of Americans are going to overreact to this because, you know, we got to somehow turn the ship around. And for me, this McCarran thing is like one of those. That seems just so extreme. If you're a communist, you have to report in and let us know. You don't have to do it if you're a Democrat. You don't have to do it if you're a Republic or an independent or whatever. But a communist, we get to know everything about you. That just seems to fly in the face of what it means to be a goddamn American. I'm done. Yeah, and look, it was all this sort of stuff that first got me interested in mm-hmm. the study of the Cold War, going back right. to when I was in my early 20s, I guess, and I started to read up on this stuff. Like it did, you know, I had a fairly um, 
uh, idealistic utopian view of America at the time. I believe and I did that America too before you was... came along. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Thanks a lot. Sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> And that was, you know, that was the thing I was trying to understand. Well, if America is a country where you have freedom of thought, freedom of expression, you know, sitting Everything. on a hill, yes. why weren't you allowed to be a communist? Why weren't you allowed to yeah. explore an alternative socioeconomic uh, philosophy? And that's what exactly. really started, you know, the whole unraveling. Um, the, the two things I can point to in my yeah education mm -hmm. that really started to unravel my um, view of the world at the time was that that I just mentioned, you know, why did America hate communism so much? Right. And the second was when I started reading books of Napoleon and I'd read one book on Napoleon that said he was like the greatest man that ever lived. And then I'd read another book on Napoleon that said he was the most evil man that ever Monster. lived. And I'm like, yeah. Hold on a second. Well, there's only one set of facts. How can there right. be two diametrically opposed interpretation of those facts? Perception. Where, yes. Exactly. Where is the truth? Right. Um, but the, right. But the way you the way you've said it over the years is that yeah, here's a book that says one thing. Here's a book that says another. They take the same facts, but they give it a different spin or whatever the proper term is. And so I, I can see that easily driving someone like you crazy. It's like no, you shouldn't be able to do this. But that's one of the other things that you can do in a, in a place that has you know the, like the First Amendment. I can I can write a loving tribute. To Hitler, I can write the exact opposite, but the point is, I'm allowed to do both in theory, um, and and so, but but yeah, they're, they're overreacting here. I did want to get your opinion on one more thing because, as you were probably about to say, when this law gets passed, the Internal Security Act, it th there's enough votes so it overrides Truman's veto. Now we've said some not pleasant things about Truman in the past, but I think he deserves a little bit credit here. When you're just talking about scaring the people a little bit to get them to come out and vote for you, yeah, yeah, that, that's politics. We all do it. This, this is a whole different animal, and I think that's why he was against it. I think he's probably thinking, whoa, whoa, we got to stay calm here. We, we can literally tear ourselves apart about a boogeyman that may or may not exist, and it's not worth it. And I, and I don't want to give him too much credit, but the fact that he was going to veto this, I think at least speaks to the to the idea that he was more moderate than a lot of these other people's. Yes, I want to stand up to the Republicans, but this, this is fucking crazy. He tries to veto it, but he is not in line with the with the times, and he gets overridden. And I, I don't know, do you think he should get some credit for that? Not that I know anything about the specifics about why he tried to veto it. I wasn't sure if you knew anything more about that. Yeah, I'm... Um... Not sure that he should get that much credit. I, mm -hmm. I wonder how much of this was um, political. Oh, like if it was a Republican uh, bill or or something like that, or well, well I don't that's know. That's the thing. It it was put forward by um, Pat McCarran. Pat McCarran was a Democrat from Nevada ah. who put put the bill forward. Now he was um, an enemy of the Roosevelt administration. Okay. Um, not really friendly with Truman. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, he, he was fairly extreme. He, he publicly, McCarran, this is, said that he despised Hitler and Stalin. 
but regarded the Third Reich as a lesser evil um, because okay. it was fighting the socialists. Right. Like, say what you want about Hitler. <laughs> um, but he killed communists, you know, and a whole bunch yeah. of other people. But he killed commie, the gypsies. The, anyway, yeah, so yeah. it's all relative. Yeah. It's all relative. <laughs> It's all relative. Jesus. You know, yeah, like, yeah, like, Nazis, okay. Yeah, sure, they got their good points and their bad points. <laughs> they built the Autobahn. But, uh, they killed communists, <laughs> you know, so not so, you know. Mm, you know. He, McCarran used to call him, private, he would call himself. The Jew Hammer. <laughs> you know, he. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Yeah, he's like, he, 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 he would was, often say, yeah. all right, Hitler, <laughs> Nazis, Nazis. Uh, <laughs> I forgot about. <laughs> anyway, yes. Ooh, so I, I suspect that, um, and I might be wrong here, but I suspect Truman wanted this past, but right. he didn't want to be seen as the uh, guy that was doing it. Right? right. So I can't be seen as the guy that's uh, forcing Americans to register yeah. their thoughts and beliefs, like the Nazis. But yeah, yeah, yeah. So let let's get let's get somebody else to put this forward. <laughs> I'll go. Road. No, no. Yeah, yeah. Kick the can. No, no. Kick the can. That's down horrible. The road. No. Yeah. But, but please, that. But please pass it later. Yeah. Please yeah. pass it later. Now this the McCarran Internal Security Act was also known as the Subversive Activities Control Act. Mm. And and I and I guess that's the way to think of it. Like, um, and this is again one of the things that kind of confused me as a younger man. Right. Um. They're passing a law here to prevent anyone from subversive activities. Right. Now, subversive activities are activities designed to overthrow the government. Yeah. Now, America was formed as an independent country <laughs> right. when it overthrew uh, the government. Damn right. Damn right. And Americans are very proud of the fact that they overthrew mm-hmm. the uh, British-controlled uh, administration. Yes, um, that they uh, that they had their little revolution and right. it was all good, but that that window has passed now. You're only allowed to overthrow the government once, one and done. Um, if the current government is corrupt or or mal- maligned, right. right? That's not the word I'm looking for, but yeah. corrupt. Let's just stay with that. Yeah, yeah. You're not allowed to overthrow. No, 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 no. You can't overthrow. Um, corrupt governments can only be overthrown once in a country's yes. history. Yeah. After that, the window is closed. You got to put up with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Makes no sense. Now, here are some key points about the Subversive Activities Control Act of 1950. Okay. The law ordered all communist organizations to register with the U.S. Attorney General and to provide lists of all their members. Mm, I no, that's that's against something. The U.S. Subversive Activities Control Board was set up to oversee the process. The act made it a crime to combine, conspire, or agree with any other person to perform any act which would substantially contribute to the establishment of a totalitarian dictatorship. Right. Okay. Let's put that to the test. If I say, you know what? Goddamn Sola was right. Sometimes you just need a strong man to get in there, step it up, clear away the shit, and and that's how you get stuff done. And the second you go, you're damn right. Mm. Are we both going to jail or at least going to be yeah. questioned at that point? I don't. I mean, this is ridiculous. Sorry. It allowed for the detention of dangerous, disloyal, 
or subversive persons in times of war or an internal security emergency. Uh, interpretation? So you can't just arrest people? Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, I know. feel it in my bones that this guy is an internal security emergency, so I'm going to bash him over the head with my nightstick. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. The act made advocating or supporting the overthrow of the U.S. government a crime and made it illegal for members of communist organizations to apply for a passport or to enter the U.S. Okay. Is this like when Trump came into office and he said, all you people from the Middle East, I'm sure there's good people in there, but I don't want any of you coming to this country. Sorry, I couldn't keep a straight face. So now they can't even enter the country. They haven't done anything wrong. They haven't been proven they guilty. Mm. They're guilty of that, so they can't come into the country. Mm. Okay. Now, a lot of there was a lot of debate about this at the time. A lot of mm. people saw it as a violation of the First Amendment. And parts of it were ruled unconstitutional by the U.S. Supreme Court, but uh, a decade and a half later. <laughs> and the act remained largely in place until it was finally repealed in 1990. Sounds right. So this yeah. survived Supreme Court challenges uh, largely for decades. decades. Oh, my God. That you can, and, it, you know, obviously by the time 1990 came around, the yeah. Soviet Union was on its knees. It was ready right. to collapse. So, so but the threat's not the, there. For Go decades, ahead. it was illegal in America, effectively illegal, to be a communist. Right. You you would suffer. You would suffer economically and probably politically in your family. Who knows? But you, you would suffer if you were communist. Yes. Jesus. Oh now, um, yeah. there was a congresswoman from California around the time, Helen Gahagan Douglas. Mm -hmm. She was a, a former actress who oh. then switched into politics, uh, you know, Ronald Reagan had a look at that and was like, oh, yeah, that's a good I'll idea. Have, I should do I'll that. have some of that, yeah. yeah. She was the third woman. This is in 1940. She became the third woman and the first former actress to be elected to Congress in California. Nice. She served as a Democrat in the U.S. House of Representatives from 1945 to 1951. In 1950, she was one of the few people who voted against the McCarran Act. Oh, that's not good. And then in her 1950 Senate run, she was defeated by Richard M. Nixon, who dubbed her the Pink Lady. <laughs> that's um, pretty good. That's that's pretty good. Yeah. He, he made a lot of references to her being a commie, to being right. pink. Right. And... Um, you know, it was a real character attack on her because yeah. she stood up and voted against this McCarran Act. And this just just to reminds me of something that I've been listening mm -hmm. to. Uh, you know who John Mearsheimer is? We've talked yeah. about him a lot on the Bullshit Filter. Mm -hmm. He's uh, He was a guest on Glenn Greenwald's uh, podcast uh, this last week, right? which I had to listen to it. And Mearsheimer's, you know, he's a professor of geopolitics or something at, University of Chicago, I think. Mm -hmm. And he's been a long-time critic of uh, US policy and geopolitical uh, strategy. Right. Uh, but he was saying on this that the, the political climate in the US now, he feels is the most suppressive of dissent that he's ever seen it in his lifetime. And that includes 
the war in Vietnam and the uh, war in Iraq, both of which he was critical of. Uh, and he and Stephen Walt, uh, the late Stephen Walt, wrote a book about 20 years ago that I read about the Israel lobby. Mm-hmm. And he said that the interesting thing is um, when you speak, when he spoke out against the Israel lobby, he would he was able to get coverage for his point of view in the New York Times or the Washington Post. He said we got attacked constantly for speaking out against the Israel lobby, but yeah. at least our views were aired. He said the difference now is when it comes to the escalation of the war in Ukraine, he doesn't even get coverage. Like right. he doesn't get Shut access to... Yeah, talk in the New York Times, the Washington Post. He's totally ignored, which reminds me of Seymour Hirsch when he came out with his story about the U.S. Uh, destroying Pipeline. the Nord Stream pipelines. Right. This is before the U.S. government then threw Ukraine under the bus and said, no, it was the Ukrainians <laughs> that did it. And we knew about it all along. We've just been lying all this time. Oh. Uh, no, you know, complete blanket non-coverage of Seymour Hirsch's version of the story as well. So, Right. Mearsheimer is saying the, the the climate in the US today is more suppressive of debate around major things like the Ukraine war than he's ever seen it. He's like astounding. Yeah. You can't even yeah. can't even have a discussion. You can't even have a, an argument where you just get shut down. Yeah. If I could give a small example of that, and, and I'm not picking sides and I'm not picking on DeSantis, but um Buttigieg, or however you say his name, our transportation secretary, recently said, with all the laws that you've been passing in Florida, who are you trying to help? You're hurting women, you're hurting trans, you're hurting non-white, you're, you're, hurt, you're trying to hurt Disney, you're hurting everybody. Who are you trying to help? And, and, I, and again, I'm not picking on the Republicans, but a lot of what they're doing is going after people. And this is what was happening back in the 1950s. The Republicans then were like going after the, going after the Republicans hard. And it, they weren't trying, I guess they saw it as trying to save their country, not that their country was being threatened just because there's a war in uh, Korea, but it was all hyped. It was all paranoid. It was all immediate. It was all extreme. It was all intense. And now some of that is making its way into these laws. And now people who have done nothing wrong will feel the effects just because they're trying to come into the country or they joined a political party, not being happy with the Republicans and the Democrats after numerous economic crashes in the country. But it doesn't matter. And you can see why Pink Lady lost her seat because she was going against the times. You know, the pendulum swings one way, it goes a little far. It goes a little extreme, and then it comes back. But at this point in 1950, it's pretty far to the right, and she loses her seat. Mm. And just for, you know, standing up for something that was later found to be unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. Exactly. Um, She was attacked by Nixon for being a commie. Yeah. Now, you know, Nixon's anti-communist stance, uh, along that with many others at the time, led to a massive political shift in the US. We've talked about this during our Red Scare episodes where mm-hmm. both the Democrats and the Republicans had to move to the right yes. to distance themselves from any sort of uh, reasonable conversation about <laughs> the Soviet Union or about socialism. Right. And during the uh, elections in 1950, the Republicans gained 28 House seats and added Ooh. five new senators. That's so there's a big shift. Yeah. To the Republicans in particular going hard uh, as being against communism. The Democrats under Truman had to move in that direction further and further 
as well. Right. And I think that's been the story of the United States ever since. Yes. There's been this continual push to the right. The further that the Republicans go, the Democrats are forced to go further to the right as well yeah. to sort of, uh, I guess they've made a decision that they can't really make a good case for policies that are on the left. So even though they still Which, say they're on the left, they're not right. there. They move further and further to the right. They would like to be. Cycle, right? Yeah. Well, see, yeah, step one, scare the shit out of the American people. Step two, I can handle this thing that you're afraid of, even though it's not really that bad and I kind of beat the war drums. The point is you're all freaking out. You're feeling, you're not thinking. And then I come along and I say, or the Republicans come along and say, we'll be tough as hell on the enemy. We will show them no mercy. We will save you. People are going to vote for that shit in big numbers, just like they did, you know, with, with like you just said in that recent election. That's a major shift to the right uh, for this country. Now, meanwhile, Julius Rosenberg was in jail awaiting mm. his trial, spending mm. his days playing chess with a convicted thief, Jerome Eugene Tartakov, right. who, unbeknownst to Julius, was an FBI informant, <laughs> and he was feeding information to the FBI, um, everything he could about Julius and Ethel. Right. I actually have um, the FBI file um, mm. on the Rosenbergs here. Right. It's sort of this massive file that's been declassified, which is um, fascinating to read. Anyway, yeah, they confirmed that Tartakov was uh, an informant, was mm -hmm. feeding them all of this information. And uh, whilst that helped them build their case, the right. biggest thing that helped the government build their case was the changed testimony of <laughs> Ethel's brother, David Greenglass. And we mentioned yeah. him in our earlier episodes on the Rosenbergs. David Greenglass was actually a, an atomic scientist mm -hmm. and was... Um, uh, a communist. Yes. He was actually one of the guys that was, you know, passing the information along to Julius. Right. There were a lot. For Julius then to pass on to his Soviet handlers. Mm -hmm. um, but Greenglass, when they threatened to arrest Greenglass's wife, right. Ruth Greenglass, Good name. Um, who had actually been the messenger. So he yes. would give the information to her. She'd, she'd memorize give it. it to, yep. And yep. she'd give it to Julius. Yeah. Um, he changed his testimony, David. <gasps> oh, fuck. Yeah. To match her story, which accused Ethel falsely yeah. of being involved. And they accused Ethel of typing out the reports. Right. So they would give information uh, to the Rosenbergs. Ethel would type out the reports and uh, then they would be given to uh, Julius and Julius would pass them on to his handlers. Yeah. Now, that's the information that the FBI needed to prosecute Ethel, but it was all made up. It yes. was all fake. It wasn't yeah. uh, uh, Ethel doing the typing. It was Ruth who actually did the typing, mm -hmm. but she was never indicted. Nope. In a 2001 it. interview, David Greenglass confessed that he made up the story about Ethel to yeah. protect his wife. He yeah. basically said, look, I had to choose between my wife and my sister. Yeah. And, I, you know. 
Can I get I the wasn't having yeah, yes. yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I, I just find this amazing. And I wouldn't have put it this way, especially, I mean, I think this is like many years later, maybe the 70s. I'm not sure exactly. But he says, I told them the story and left her, Ethel, out of it, right? This is when he first is being approached. Because I left my sister out of it, but, you know, she wasn't anything to do with it. She knew what was going on, but she wasn't a part of it. But then he goes, but my wife put her in it. So what am I going to do? Call my wife a liar? My wife is my wife. I mean, I'm not sleeping with my sister. You know, there's more to it than sex. You understand. But you make a life with somebody. And in my generation, that's the way I go. My wife is more important to me than my sister. So he knowingly lied, knowingly threw his his sister under the bus, knowing that she was probably going to go to jail for a long time. Why? So his wife wouldn't be mad at him and he'd have to sleep on the couch or maybe get married again. I, I don't know. But he literally chose his wife over his sister, um, uh, but but lied to the feds, which was OK. Normally, that's a bad thing, but that's what they wanted to hear. So they were happy with it as well. I just found that astounding. Yeah. And imagine living with that for the rest yes, of your life. He died in you. 2014. Oh, he got to uh, think about it for a long time. Yeah, uh, 60, 60 odd years. Right. The fact that he lied and his sister got the death penalty. Yes. His two nephews were left without parents. Yes. Um, and he was the one that passed on, the, like, he was the yes. guy the fuck? that passed he on was... the information. God. Um, Why didn't the government make an example out of him versus the Rosenbergs, but they had already decided their course? For whatever reason. Yeah, well, I think we talked about that in mm. an earlier episode. They didn't want to throw a top atomic scientist under the bus. Good point. Kind of need those right now. Kind of important. Yeah. Yeah. That's fucked so, up. So, um, yeah. Anyway, I think we'll um, we'll leave that episode here and we'll uh, pick up the uh, rest of the trial um, in the next episode. buildup on the island of Cuba. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere.